This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Today in America, one in five women will be the victim of rape or attempted rape in their lifetime, and one prominent study has found that at least 20% of adolescent girls have been physically or sexually abused by a date or a boyfriend. In his new book, The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help, our guest today, Jackson Katz, provides original and creative ways about how to reverse this ongoing national tragedy. Katz is the co-founder of the Mentors in Violence Prevention Program, the leading gender violence prevention initiative in professional and college athletics. He is also the director of the first worldwide domestic and sexual violence prevention program in the United States Marine Corps. Jackson Katz, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing fine. Very Thank good. You. Where, where are we reaching you? What part of the country is this? I'm, I'm in western Massachusetts. Right. Amherst, Massachusetts. How's how's the weather there in uh, Amherst today? <laughs> um, it's uh, overcast and probably forty degrees. Wow. Okay. Well, so it's, it's just not checking as bad in. As it could yeah. be at this time of year <laughs> in this part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us how big of a problem is violence against women? How pervasive is this problem? Oh well, it's. Uh, cuts across every social and socioeconomic category, racial and ethnic group, geographic area, income level. Um, something like one in three women worldwide have been the victims of a, a rape or an attempted rape or a, 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 a physically abusive uh, assault from a man, um, one in three. In the United States, on college campuses, uh-huh. um, women are... Uh, one in four women will be the victim of a rape or attempted rape in her college years. Wow. I mean, it's it's unbelievably pervasive, and and um, if not the actual incident of violence, the threat of violence is a part of women's daily life in the United States. So, for example, I do an, I do I do an exercise in in the speeches that I do a lot of on college campuses and in community settings, and in a mixed gender audience, I ask mm-hmm. the men what they do every day to protect themselves from sexual assault, right. and. I've done the exercise probably thirteen or fourteen hundred times, and I've only gotten three serious answers from men. Most most of the time, there's dead silence, or a guy raises his hand and says, "You know, I don't do anything. I don't really think about sexual assault on a daily basis." And then I ask the women the same exact question, mm-hmm. and the list of things that women do every single day in the United States, whether it's an urban or suburban or a rural area, to protect themselves from being sexually assaulted is just unbelievable. I mean, just the list goes on. Like, don't you know? Look in the back seat of your car before you get in. Hold your keys as a potential weapon. You, list your first name in the phone, uh, first initial in the phone book. Have a man's voice on the answering machine. Don't take a first floor apartment. Don't put your drink down at a party. I mean, it just goes on and on. Yeah. So no. e- even if the incidence of it is not a presence in, a, in a, is not present in a woman's life, the threat of it is pervasive. Now, what is the reaction of the men when in in the groups that you're speaking to when they hear this reaction from the women? Well, that's a good question. One of the one of the um, reasons why I developed this um, exercise, if you will, was as a consciousness-raising exercise for men, because a lot of men sit there and they just hadn't even thought of these things before. It, it, and, and to look up at the boards to see the men's side blank, you know, empty, and the women's side completely full is very strong empirical evidence of the 
you know, power of sexism and, and how unfair it is, um, men's violence against women is in, you know, in women's lives as well as in men's lives. But I think a lot of men are, are at first uh, a bit taken aback by it. And I think it's, for some men, it's, it can be um, a very important moment in their consciousness, uh, you know, the growth of their consciousness about sexism. Uh, you know, obviously some other men are shut down and they don't want to even think about it. Uh-huh. Well, uh, there's something that in the, uh, the macho paradox that you bring up, which I, I think is very important in the way that we look at this. This is often um, framed as a woman's issue, the, the violence against women. And, and yet it's not, there's, there's no active voice in, that, in, that, uh, in the way that that's presented. It's not violence against women, it's men perpetrating violence against women. And that's one of the central themes in your book, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, if I had to say the one central point of my work in this area is that historically the issues of sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, domestic violence, those issues have been seen as women's issues that some good men help out with. And my, the, the premise of much of my work is to say, wait a second, these aren't women's issues that some good men help out with. They're men's issues. And if we really want to prevent um, sexual and domestic violence, we need to name the problem. The problem is not women and women's attitudes and behaviors. It's, it's men and, and men's attitudes and behaviors and the workings of the institutions of our society that are largely still controlled by um, men, and in particular white men. But one of the, things, the examples that I use to make this point is, is the discussion about rape. Most Americans would agree that rape is an important issue, but most people think it's an important women's issue. Um, and yet I, I ask the question often, again, in, in audiences that I speak to, I say, you know, what, does anybody here know what percentage of rape is perpetrated by um, um, women? And because, you know, it's a women's issue, so how many, what percentage of rape is perpetrated by women? And, you know, the answer is less than 1% of rape is perpetrated by women, whether the victims are female, which they are in approximately 90% of rape cases, or male, which they are in approximately 10% of rape cases. The, perpetra- the overwhelming number of perpetrators of rape are men and boys. So let's think about this. Over 99% of rape is perpetrated by men, but it's a women's issue? And, and I'm suggesting that that's not just an academic observation to point that out, because there are certain predictable consequences that flow from the premise that rape is a women's issue, and one of them is that what's, what has passed for prevention up till now, up till very recently, whether it's on college campuses or elsewhere, what has passed for prevention is really risk reduction for women and girls. And true prevention means not just reducing individuals' risk of being assaulted, but preventing the violence from happening in the first place, and that means working with men and boys and in parts of male culture that have um, historically either been apathetic about these issues or openly resistant and hostile to women's efforts to educate and politicize them. Now, why do you think it is defined as a man's issue? Is it, is it, a, is it learned? Or I mean, is it, or, or is it just the way our culture is set up? Why, why is it presented that way? Or why do people you know, continue to buy off on that when it's so off? I mean, I, I think I said man's issue. I meant women's issue. Yeah. Why, is, why is it presented as that? Well, one reason is from, from the earlier question about the you know, sort of linguistics. I, I mean, we talk about um, how many women were raped, how many uh, girls were abused, how many teenage girls got pregnant? In each case, the use of the passive voice uh-huh. shifts our attention off of men and boys and puts it onto girls and women. So one of the reasons why so many people think these, of these as women's issues is because our whole cognitive structure is set up to 
think about these as women's issues. Huh. And even the term violence against women, you know, it's, it's a passive construction. There's no active agent in the sentence. It's a bad thing. Violence against women, it kind of happens to yeah. women, but nobody's really doing it. And so I think, in part, that that's the re- you know that's one of the reasons why we think of it as a women's issue. Also, I mean, let's face it; it is a women's issue on one level because women are affected dramatically. So I don't mean to you know yeah. uh, um, you know erase women's experience of, of of men's violence. And some people will say to me, "Well, okay, why do you have to say men's issue and women's issue? Why can't you just say these are people's issues? These are community issues. They're human issues." And my response to that is, of course, that the default category for most people. If you don't use specifically gendered language, the default category is to go back to women's issues. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to change people's thinking, and I'm you know, suggesting in the macho paradox that we need a, a paradigm shift in our thinking, we need a whole conceptual, new conceptual framework to think about these issues, we have to be critical about the way that we use, uh, you, we use language. And the other thing is, you know, let's face it, men are the dominant sex class in this, in this culture and virtually every other world culture. And to think otherwise is a bit delusional. I mean, we, women have made all kinds of advances, but we're still a male-dominated society. The linguistic system of, the society, of any given society reflects the power structures of that society, as it does in ours. And so part of the, it's much easier to focus on the victims of crimes than it is the perpetrators if focusing on the perpetrators means that the society as a, as a collective, if you will, or as a whole, has to look in the mirror or has to be introspective because the, 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 per, the pervasiveness of rape and sexual violence and domestic violence in this culture suggests that we're not talking about a handful of sick individuals who are somehow anomalous or aberrational, right? We're talking about a culture, our culture, that produces abusive men and boys at pandemic rates. And so true prevention means actually as a society trying to understand what is it that we're doing? How are we producing so many abusive boys and men, and then what can we do differently? That's, that's a challenge. That, that's, that presents a challenge, and I think some people, whether it's conscious or unconscious, would rather either avert their eyes and not think about it at all, or they'd rather attribute it to a bunch of bad apples or sick individuals or yeah. twisted guy, you know, men who are somehow you know, unlike the rest of us. But we know from decades now of research, in whether it's sexual violence perpetration or, or uh, abusive, you know, in relationship contexts, domestic violence perpetrators, etc., that the average perpetrator is um, not sick, is not, is not uh, uh, mentally disturbed, is not so different from the quote-unquote normal average guy. And I think that fact in itself makes a lot of people very uncomfortable because if perpetrators were just so different from the rest of us and they were so sick and obviously twisted, then we wouldn't have to look in the mirror as a society as much as we do if we take into account the fact that they are much more normal than that. We're speaking with Jackson Katz. The book is The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help. I want to uh, jump in, Mike, and uh, ask, what does homophobia play any role in, in violence against women? Is there, is there some, something going on there that ties it into uh, this? Absolutely. I mean, one of the, homophobia is one of the key policing mechanisms in male peer culture, and the term policing mechanism, policing mechanism I use to, to, to talk about the, 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 the dynamics within groups of men that keep men in a certain um, narrow box of what is considered acceptable behavior or acceptable manhood, if you will. And I'm not talking about just peer cultures of 14-year-old boys or, or 20-year-old college students. I'm also talking about 55-year-old you know, men who reside in 
peer cultures. And one of the ways that homophobia works in this specific regard is when men challenge each other's sexism, when a man challenges his friends' attitudes or behaviors towards women um, um, or girls or his treatment or mistreatment of women or girls, he's often, his heterosexuality is often called into question. Like he's not a real man or he's not a quote-unquote real heterosexual man. And a lot of men, I think, make the, make the determination, and a lot of young men and boys make the determination that even if they're uncomfortable with the behavior of some of their peers, in terms of their peers' treatment of women and girls, if speaking out about that will um, cause them to um, lose some status or people to wonder about their um, quote-unquote manhood or their heterosexuality, um, a lot of men, I think, make the calculation that it's not worth it. And in a society that where, where gay men still face um, systemic discrimination, although there's been lots of progress in recent uh, years, and, and they still not only face um, discrimination, but the possibility of violence um, just for the fact of being gay. And the violence, by the way, against gay men is almost always at the hands of other men, right? So, mm-hmm. so men know very well there are risks to take that you're taking if you speak out and challenge this whole system of, of sexism. Um, and one of those risks is, is um, violence from other men. A lot of men decide it's not worth it. How, I, I just want to say how much uh, of this is, a, is our, our culture... Let's bring in the media a little bit. The, that the, uh, how much of a role does our popular culture play in reinforcing some of these... Um, these stereotypes. And, well, and an incredibly behavior. important role, and, and one of the things that frustrates me to no end is the, is the superficiality of the of the conversa- the national conversation about the effects of media, because it, it, it's so simplistic what you hear bandied about on both sides, if you will, on both sides of the major uh, sort of uh, you know major arguments about about media effects. So let me just say, I don't believe, nor does any thoughtful person, in my opinion, believe that media causes violence. Nobody nobody thoughtful says that. It doesn't cause violence, but media is the great pedagogical force of our time. It's the great teaching force of our time. And if most violence is learned behavior, which it is, because I don't believe that it's genetic or biological at root, I, don't, I think there might be genetic or biological factors that are worth considering, but not, they're not even close to being the most significant factors in the perpetration of violence. Mm-hmm. But if, if, if it's learned behavior then it's also being taught somewhere, right? So we have to look at the places in our culture that, is, that are teaching boys and men that part of being a man means being dominant, being powerful, being in control. And at the same time, they're teaching boys and men about that lesson about manhood. There's a corresponding lesson about, you know, womanhood, if you will. In other words, the, the level of objective, uh, sexual objectification of two-dimensionality that women are presented as just complete two-dimensional objects that are there for, women, for men's uh, heterosexual... Um, pleasures is it's pervasive in this culture so at the same time that men are learning that being a man means being powerful and dominant they're learning that women are there as objects to serve men's needs and to think that that's somehow unrelated to the level of men's violence against women the level of sexual harassment in schools and in the workplace on the streets that the, the sexual assault rates that are pervasive you know to think that somehow the media culture that we're all immersed in is unrelated to other social you know phenomena i think is naive at best so I'm part of the uh, you know growing media literacy movement. I, I make educational videos on media-related themes. Um, my first film was called Tough Guys, G-U-I-S-E, Violence, Media, and the Crisis in Masculinity. Back in the, it came out in 2000. But the whole goal of the media literacy movement, at least my part of it, is to educate students and others about the connections between the media 
constructions of, you know, quote-unquote manhood and womanhood and masculinity and femininity, and how boys' and men's gender identities are shaped by or help to be shaped by those, you know, media representations. And I wanted to bring one aspect of the media representation. It's a small part, but it is something that does define this issue, which is when, when you hear discussions about violence against women and people who stand up and say you know, how pervasive a problem this is, you often hear them uh, described as male bashers or male bashing as part of it. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the. Pro- I mean, then that's one of the. And, well, that's one of the problems that women who have been trying to raise these issues for forever, for decades and centuries, even have faced, which is just calling attention to the level of violence perpetrated by men. Um, um, We'll bring causes a backlash against the women who try to raise the issue, mm-hmm. and calling them a male basher, which I, you know, I deconstruct this in my book, and I also in my in, in a lot of my talks. It's like um, if you take the word male basher, the word bash in the dictionary as a verb means to hit or to strike. So a male basher is really a violent person when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, the women who speak out against sexual harassment, rape, battering, domestic violence, those women who are speaking out against violence are the actual bashers. They're the violent ones. It, this is what's called an Orwellian inversion. It's the opposite of the truth. And, and not only that, but in the term male basher, men are the ones who are being bashed. In the real world, we know that the, the vast majority of violence between the sexes is men's violence against women. There's some violence by women against men. There's some, uh, you know, female to male um, child abuse. It, these are serious problems. But nowhere near the level of violence in terms of the total numbers of men's violence against women. But in the term male basher, women are the ones doing the violence and men are the ones being bashed, which, again, is very effective rhetorical, almost propagandistic, uh, linguistic device to shift blame off of uh, men and put it back onto the women. So it's them. They're bashing men. They hate men. They're angry. You know, somehow it's their problem rather than the fact that they pointed out our problem. We're speaking with Jackson Katz. The book is The Macho Paradox. And so what can we do about this problem? Is there, is there one first step that, that, uh, that men can take? Sure. I mean, the first, the first <laughs> step men can take is to, is to break our complicit silence. I, I mean, a lot of men, aren't, most men are not abusive, but most men will say, this isn't my problem. I don't mm-hmm. rape my, you know, women. I don't abuse my wife or my girlfriend. This isn't my issue. It's not my problem. And a lot of men, therefore, will sort of wash their hands of responsibility. And, and, and my response to that, again, is, okay, if you're a white person in a racist society and you don't yourself act out in racist ways, but you don't challenge other white people's racism, then, in a sense, isn't your silence a form of consent and complicity in their racism? One of the great um, leaders of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, said that in situations of oppression, those who remain neutral take the side of the oppressor. Well... Why is that not true here? It is true here, right? If you're a heterosexual person and you don't harass um, gay, lesbian, bisexual people, but you don't challenge other heterosexuals who do, then in a sense, isn't your silence a form of consent and complicity in their heterosexism? Well, isn't that same exact principle true of men? If you're, you yourself as a man is not, are not abusive to women and girls, but you don't challenge other men, you don't use your platform of leadership or influence with younger men, in your, whether it's in your family, in your workplace, in your community, in your faith community, whatever it is, if you don't speak out on these issues, then in a sense, isn't your silence a form of consent and complicity in other men's abusive behavior? And I think, you know, the answer seems obvious to me, and, and I, think, I think that's a message that a lot of men need to sort of take in and then try to figure out, okay, how, what role can they play? You know, because a lot of guys will say, if I don't rape or abuse women, then what can I do? 
And then, I, you know, I, again, I think we need so much more from men. We need men confronting each other. We need men providing leadership to younger men and boys in any number of different ways, be giving them clear guidelines about how do you, you know, how do you be a, pers- a man of conscience, a man of you know, integrity in a culture where there's so much incredible sexism and abuse that's become normalized? How do, you, how, do you, you know, how do you navigate those waters? I think boys need so much more guidance from men than they've been getting. And I am happy to say, in a, po- a very positive note, that I am part of a growing movement of men oh. in, the, in, you know, in the United States and around the world who are finally doing this yeah. and beginning to make some strides in that work. Well, I was just going to ask you, how long have you been involved uh, in this particular, on this particular issue? Well, you know, it really uh, actually goes back to my sophomore year in college, so about 26 years or something like that. So I've been, I've been, this is kind of my lifelong work. And have you seen, in, can you really, do you feel that there's a, a, a much different sort of paradox, or I mean, a, a paradigm out there as far as this issue is concerned? Well, I think we're beginning to gather some, um, some, some steam, if you will, as, a, as a, in, you know, an early stage social movement. Yeah. I think today there's so much more activity. There are so many more initiatives. That, that address men and boys. I think part of that's because of the Violence Against Women Act in 19, that was passed by the Congress of the United States in 1994, which, which mandated and gave federal money to a whole bunch of different initiatives, including initiatives that address working with men and boys. So it, it didn't just happen, obviously, all of a sudden. It's been a, a, a growing process. But um, today, for example, there is way more men and young men, whether it's on college campuses or in communities, who are you know, uh, going out and working on these issues and, and speaking with younger boys and girls and, and, and writing about these subjects um, than, ever, than ever before. When I was doing it early on, it was, there, was only a ha- there were only a handful of us, mm-hmm. and today it's, no, it's nowhere near a critical mass. I, can't, I don't want to, be to o- mean to overstate it, but just the fact that we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Ten or 15 years ago, there were, people weren't having these kind of conversations in public. Very, Very good. Well, that's, that's, uh, that is good news. I, I want to, um, once again... I want to thank you, Jackson Katz, uh, for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help. Uh, you have a website? Yeah, thank you. It's, I, my website is Jackson Katz, my name, J-A-C-K-S-O-N-K-A-T-Z dot com. And there's lots of resources available on my website. Very Excellent. good. And you can get to it uh, through the Weekly Signals uh, website also. So uh, I want to thank you for being on Weekly Signals. Uh, Jackson Katz, uh, continue your, your good work. Thank you very much, Nathan and Mike. I appreciate being on. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.